So welcome back to another episode of Dean's Discussions. Today we're joined with John Ferry, spectator, writer, uh, Lib Dem finance spokesman, also joined by Margaret Curran, Scottish Labour, former MP, um, former Secretary of State for Scotland, amongst many other briefs. Shadow Secretary. Shadow, <laughs> forgive me, Shadow. <laughs> and today we're going to be looking at Scotland's economy, pre and post pandemic. We're going to look at structural weaknesses, talk about va various problems that are long set, and we'll get into how we can probably fix them. So inequalities, government policy action, there'll be lots and lots and lots to talk about. Before we begin, I'll do what I always do. I'll open up with an opening spiel from me to sort of set a sort of context, and then I'll throw it open for the, my guests to chew into. And I thought I'd start in 2008. Why? Well, in 2008, two days after the Lehman Brothers were put into bankruptcy in London, the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, and Bern Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve at the time, walk into the George W. Bush Oval Office and say, we need $1 trillion in cash by 5 p.m. or the entire financial system will collapse in two weeks. First in America, then the Bank of England, European Central Bank, Bank of Tokyo, the whole thing goes. End of the financial system as we know it, no more cash come out of cash machines, anarchy. Now, these are not men who were given to hyperbole. These were, in the case of Hank Paulson, um, highly professional finance secretary, is financial operator with a background in Goldman Sachs. So why am I starting there? Well, <laughs> what happens in America in 2008 cast an exceptionally long shadow, and Scotland has certainly not been exempt from it. We are today dealing with issues around stagnant productivity, poor GDP growth per head and overall um, ever since. We have had inflation that is now rip-roaring through the economy. And my contention is, whilst the pandemic definitely exacerbated all of this, it certainly was not the cause of many of these problems. They, they go right back to the financial crisis, and perhaps in some cases even before. In the case of inflation, we've, right now, Scott, the UK, including Scotland, is facing producer in producer price inflation inputs of over 22%. That's global supply chains that are in a state of disruption. China's zero COVID strategy, property market problems in the Chinese economy with China Evergrande basically going bankrupt, which is absolutely terrifying. All the Russo-Ukraine war, huge disruption to uh, supply chains, driving producer inflation to the highest point since 1985, when, which is when we started recording it, and factory gate prices are over 15% and likely to go higher. So producer inflation is causing huge disruption to the economy. So farmers, etc., any of these producers who would then sell to retailers or third parties are being absolutely squeezed. Um, the, long, the long roots go back to our policy response after the financial crisis. The Bank of England and the American Central Bank and everyone else decided that what we'd do is mass printing of money, flood the zone with liquidity, interest rates of zero percent for over you know on and off for over a decade. And what you end up is if you owned stocks in the last 15 years, if you owned intellectual property rights, you've had the best run in human history. If you're a worker, you've been screwed. Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, real estate has always has also been a boon. <laughs> but if you're the little guy encouraged to save, you've been absolutely just decimated. If you're looking for a bond offering in America, for example, to build a new school extension, there's simply not been enough juice in the offering to make that happen. So it's been absolutely horrendous. And when the Bank of England floods the zone with electronic money, which is what it has been doing, just magicking this up since 2008, 
and you use it to buy government bonds and gilts. The problem is this creates inflation, or it can create inflation, not least because if, for example, you overestimate how much liquidity is required, you create inflation. <laughs> and we've had the financial crisis, quantitative easing, which is basically electronic printing of money to buy government bonds and gilts to try and create like, tons and tons of liquidity. And then we did the same thing again after the uh, pandemic. All of this <laughs> creates huge inflationary pressures and is not sustainable. Um, so we've had inflationary problems. It goes back a long way. And of course, you can't just pull the a U-turn and just shove interest rates up as fast as you can because that creates a whole bunch of other economic problems. So you have to turn course but do it very slowly and it's a mess. It's been a real mess. Quantitative easing was never free but we certainly became addicted to it economically. So there's that. We've got ageing population. Scotland has, according to some studies, faces an age, age, old age dependency ratio of 48% by 2037, higher than the UK overall, which would be expected to be 45%. Higher age dependency means greater burden on the working population to support the growing number of old people in terms of services and support. Economic performance, Scottish GDP, 2006 to 2018, Scottish GDP, Scottish GDP per head of population was continually lower than the UK equivalents. Why? Because Scotland's economically structurally too reliant on oil and gas in the North Sea. In 2014-15, the oil price problems hit the Scottish economy, slowing down our GDP, but not just for oil and gas, also all the manufacturing sectors, all the sectors directly connected and tied into the supply chains around the North Sea, the manufacturing. So Scotland's economically, structurally, not as dynamic as it needs to be. And lastly, I'll touch on productivity. Now, productivity in Scotland, according to CBI KPMG, Scottish Productivity Index of 2019, was by 2019 stagnant, globally stagnant for 15 years. So fast forward to today, you're talking 17 years of stagnation of productivity. Why would that be? Well, digital skills gap in Scotland is pronounced. There's a big story there to do with educational inequalities, which feed into the decline of Scotland's education system. Also tied in with this would be low rates of business startups, low proportion of businesses that export in Scotland outside of the UK. Perhaps Brexit is a big factor there, insecurities around the possibility of Skexit, Scottish exit from the UK, certainly doesn't help that. Uh, low uptake and adoption of new technologies, huge problems. And if also think of the percentage of businesses that innovate, it, it was 45, Innovation Active Businesses in Scotland was 45%, 2014 to 16, and that dropped to 32%, 2016 to 18, going into the pandemic, which made it all even worse. Now, why is that important? Well, 32% business innovation in Scotland in 2018 was worse than it was in 2008 to 10, right off the back of the financial crisis. So from 2008 to 2018-19, Scotland's business innovation got worse and worse and worse. In 2008 to 10, business innovation was 33%. We went into the pandemic with a rate of 32%. That's catastrophic. And there are huge reasons that need to be gone into about why we're simply not innovative as an economy. And of course, finally, the last point within all of this, let's be fair to the Scottish government. The Scottish government have acknowledged some of these problems. Three million pounds were announced in the latest budget in additional funding for Scottish SMEs, small, medium sized businesses to help them on their quote digital journey. That's to be welcomed. Six point five million pounds for childcare. That will certainly not hurt productivity. But let's be honest, it's a drop in the ocean. It's grossly insufficient. So these are just a, a short overview of some of the economic challenges as I see it. That's 
a contextualization that I, as I would put it. Inflation, aging population, business innovation, inequalities educationally, childcare, all of these things, um, and much, much more besides. So that's my opening take to contextualize it as I where I'm sitting. And I thought I'd start with John. Is there anything in particular within that you want to, to pick up on and run with or? Um, I guess I just, uh, just one point I maybe start on is, is that I would probably disagree with your analysis of inflation um, and, and how it correlates with quantitative easing and monetary policy over the last 10 years, simply because it's not really backed by the evidence. Um, inflation, the high, the high inflation we've got now is, is, is quite new, but money, quantitative easing and um, loose monetary policy, even negative interest rates have actually been around for quite a long time without leading to inflation. It's only as we've had the pandemic and the Ukraine war and the supply chain issues, etc., that we've really seen inflation possibly exacerbated by mm -hmm. the monetary stimulus that was um, put in place at the start of the pandemic. So mm -hmm. certainly possibly exacerbated by that. But I wouldn't correlate quantitative easing loose monetary policy with inflation per se simply because the evidence has shown over the last two decades and actually longer in, in well yeah two decades in Japan for instance Japan was the first country to have quantitative easing in I think the late 90s they first started doing it and for a long period they've never managed to really stimulate inflation they, they were trying to stimulate inflation in their economy never managed to do it um, people just kept saving and not spending so so yeah, so I'm not sure. I wouldn't be so negative on quantitative easing and, and, and uh, loose monetary policy in that way. But it was probably needed. Yeah, it was definitely needed after the financial crisis. The more interesting thing was that, in retrospect, we can probably look back and see that if we had known we were coming into a period of ultra low interest rates and then quantitative easing, we could have spent a lot more government money in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Yeah. So we could have actually used a lot more fiscal stimulus, yeah. and that's apparent to us now in retrospect and you know liberal democrats who are the generation above me who went into coalition get a kicking for <laughs> helping the tories implement austerity and the mm -hmm. tories get a kicking on austerity for uh, late in the late 2000s early 2010s but actually if you look at the fundamentals of the markets then when you know coming up to the financial crisis the norm in in in, in markets was interest rates of four or five percent and that was the refinancing rate you were looking at in, in uh, guilt markets when the government was having to refinance its, its debt. It was actually reasonable to think we can't just have enormous spending programmes because we're paying 4 or 5% interest rates to refinance. But when, but that's very different when you're looking at paying half a percent to refinance your debt. So mm -hmm. you can actually run much bigger uh, deficits in, uh, when you're doing that. So that's just one kind of technical point I maybe yeah, that's disagree with. Um, the rest of your analysis on productivity and structural issues around the Scottish economy, etc., I thought was all good. Um, and there's definitely issues there that we need to tackle. And um, I think the problem is that in, in Scotland is, if I can generalise, we, we do an awful lot of talking and analysis about the economy and strategies to help the economy without a lot of action. So if you look at the Scottish government over the last 10 years, there's been multitudes of strategy boards and advisors and strategy for this and strategy for that. I did a, an article last year where I looked at some of this and I pulled up a report from um, uh, the Fraser of Islander Institute <laughs> in 2018 where they had listed all the different quantities. I read that too. <laughs> so, I was just about to reference that, yeah. Yeah, so, so their list was, so this was in 2018, there's probably more now, um, there was an economics the, the Scottish government had an economic strategy, a digital strategy, an energy strategy, a circular economy strategy, a climate change strategy, sorry, a climate change plan, a trade and investment strategy, a labour market strategy, social enterprise strategy, hydro nation strategy, strategy action plan for women in enterprise, STEM strategy, manufacturing action plan, youth employment strategy, innovation action plan, national islands plan, agenda for cities and Arctic <laughs> strategy. And then uh, as well as all that, there was lots of um, sector specific strategies and then you had local authority strategies and and everything else so there's an awful lot of strategizing going on and and people working across purposes probably without having any clear concrete objective in mind mm -hmm. and this probably ties into um 
a point that's become apparent over the last year or so. It would be really good, I think, for Scotland to cut down in all this multiple overlapping overlapping strategies that we've got and have a single coherent, actionable economic strategy for growing the economy with a focus on one or two really key areas. So um, the green revolution is probably the obvious one and and creating that green industrial um, uh, industrialization that we that we that we completely missed out on in Scotland actually. If you look at the east northeast coast of England from the Tyne down to the Humber, there is a green industrial revolution taking place there. Everything the British vote is building an enormous car uh, electric car battery plant north of um Blythe in Northumberland or at Blythe in Northumberland. Um there's there's uh the jackets for or the the, the turbines etc for for wind farms are actually being built near Hill. <laughs> so we've actually managed to, to do some manufacturing there that we haven't managed to do with Bifarm. So that's happening, and they haven't got a parliament coming up with all these strategies and put, putting in place talking shops etc. They're managing to do all this just with local authorities, um, universities acting with local authorities mm-hmm. and other things, and these people melding together and not being bogged down in constitutional issues or, or, or other things like that and actually just doing the nuts and bolts of bringing capital together with innovators and entrepreneurs and getting things launched and we seem to be not doing that in Scotland and I suspect it's because we're doing far too much talking and analysing and being diverted by things at the constitution rather than actually focusing on the economy. Yeah I would certainly agree with that. I remember relatively recently the Farago over free ports versus green ports and that was um, another example where a rather useful economic solution to depressed areas was held up because of constitutional game playing frankly which is just deeply deeply frustrating but yeah and also in terms of what you were saying about the plethora of structures <laughs> that exist um, I remember I'm just glancing at my article here I wrote on the run-up to the last holiday election I was writing about 44 million pounds that the Scottish government have spent on duplication purposes where they've spent money on two different organizations um, innovation and development hubs around the world which also duplicate what Scottish development uh, international is meant to be doing and so there's a duplication effort which is just such a unhelpful waste of time and resources and as and nothing none of them really work as well as they should so yeah um margaret do you want to come Hello. In? john was uh, saying well thank you those were both very interesting contributions and uh, lots of interesting stats there to quote <laughs> so thank you dean for that that will always come in useful um there's a cover i mean i think that last point that john made is really interesting because I think it's so refreshing to have a conversation about the economy where we're not going to have to be judged entirely by what position you take on the constitution mm-hmm. and you know, and to get on to some of the other discussions that you have away from just that kind of framework that we're always working in. Um, but I and what we actually need is some leadership in Scotland. They're not necessarily always from the Scottish government. Hopefully it can come from other sources as well. But leadership that gives some coherence to an economic analysis and an economic policy that I think can bring together the complexities that we need to address. And I'll come on to some of the issues I, I would want to emphasise, but also fuse that into a uh, coherent plan of action. And I think it is that. What are the key actions that Scotland needs to take? How do we build a consensus from the, for them? How do we make sure the key players, the key actors, are all working in consonance with one another to be actually achieve some results? Climate challenge is obviously one of them. Ageing is obviously one of them. And the one, obviously, that I would have an interest in is uh, income inequality. Because all the economic commentators will tell you that low-income growth is it's a real problem with the UK economy, but it's a particular um, challenge that we've got in Scotland. Now, the Resolution Foundation has done quite a lot of work in this, and most of their work, I think, is UK uh, based. But I think they've done some work in Scotland as well, but they've talked about that toxic combination of low productivity, uh, low income, and you know the impact of austerity and bringing that all together. 
and that kind of profound challenge that we've had with inequality in Scotland and the knock-on effect that that has had, I think, is something that we really need to think about. Because I think it's something like, of all those living in, uh, living in poverty that you would officially recognise, 68% of those people are in work. And unless we actually begin to tackle that, so we've got that problem, put that alongside, as you said, Dean, the skills gap that we've got in Scotland just now, where businesses are consistently reporting. They've got about a third, um, let me get a third of Scottish businesses um, still say that the skills gap is holding them back. And oh, yeah. um, 62% um, are still struggling to find the right people. You know, now we understand that's often at the high end. We understand that that's often, as you said, the lack of digital skills and such like. And I'm not, I don't want to be facile about it. That's not necessarily an easy problem to solve just by, you know, you think you can just tinker it at the edges. But it does show you that we've got opportunities that we can find in Scotland. And I think we move on to talking about some of the solutions that we can find. Like, I hate to use the word strategy now, it's kind of loaded. I'm not, I'm not suggesting yet another strategy. But we do have to look at um, a new approach to industrial strategy. And I think that idea of broadening economic terms, looking at what we mean of it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, taken, it's taken a decade to argue that childcare is an infrastructure cost, for example. But education actually contributes to the economy. And actually, if we've got some coherence of those systems working together, yeah. I think we could begin to um, tackle that, as everybody says, that low productivity that has damned the Scottish and the British economy. And we won't actually move unless we begin to actually tackle some of those problems mm-hmm. in the context of the crisis that we're facing at the moment. I mean, this is, this is urgent stuff. You know, if you look at the economic crisis, the cost of living crisis that we're dealing with, and some of the legacy, I take your point about the pandemic, but we've still got the tailspin of the pandemic to deal with. So good politics is about creating opportunities out of challenge. And you just don't feel that's happening very much in Scotland. We're not having the political conversation we mm-hmm. need to have to meet some of these economic challenges, I don't think. Well, there was one point actually on what you said there that were worth in that I thought occurred to me that I'll just throw out there for fly in the balloon to see the kite to see how it goes when you're talking about wages not keeping up with inflation cost of living crisis that feeds into the other problems because we haven't we have a labor shortage (laughs) there's rising demand there's a labor shortage especially with truck drivers and agriculture sectors so we don't have enough people and unemployment rate is what 3.8 percent or something like that if i recall so the problem there is you're talking wage inflation (laughs) which we don't want because wage inflation because you'll have to raise prices to try and attract raise wage offerings to attract the the workers working collective bargaining has never frankly i think that i think that's maybe one of the issues that i'm trying to say i think we always look at these in very short term issues as if what's the immediate but we actually need to look at the long-term drives of the British and Scottish economies. And Rachel Reeves has done quite a lot of interesting work about it. I mean, you should say as well that it's not wages that have driven up inflation at the moment. I mean, Mariana Masakato has has done quite a lot of work that says, you know, Mm. this is corporate, um, Mm. obviously it's the energy prices, but obviously they're driving corporate um, Mm. uh, dividends and such like has played its own part, which I've got some stats that tell you the rate that they've gone up at. I wouldn't but, want to say it's a wage-driven inflation yeah. right now, but that's definitely yeah. coming. But if I, if we think if we only look and say that the you know the the only solution to, or a key solution to this is to drive down wages just now, I think that would that's a recipe for disaster for the for the economy because it'll just you know the challenge is to drive inflation. Yeah. yeah, so I think I think it's fair. I think it's fair to say we need to increase the size of the labour force. Um, you know, we can all look around. You can go online and try and book a table at a local restaurant and find that they're only doing dinner three nights a week just now because they haven't got the staff to do five nights a week or, or whatever. Or local hotels where they're only they have, they don't have the restaurant open because they haven't got the hospitality staff. Um, so there's clearly structural rigidities in the labour market there, which must be related to Brexit as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, of course, of course. Yeah. So, 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 you know, having having uh, a more having a more open relationship with 
the rest of Europe, which Liz Truss has actually been talking about in the last few days if she becomes Prime Minister. So that's actually one sign of, right. of a bit of rationality maybe coming in there. Um, and bringing more people in to do all this work means that uh, it's not necessarily about necessarily the, the trade-off between wage inflation and price inflation, but it's, it's just about there's economic activity, potential economic activity not happening right now because we don't have yeah. the workers in place doing the work. Mm-hmm. And that's lowering GDP and everything else yeah, and yeah, growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we can just get people in to do to to to, mm-hmm. to, to, to do these jo- these jobs where there's a desperate demand for it, mm-hmm. then that will that will increase growth and mm-hmm. GDP and everything else and help solve some of these problems. Um, it's just unfortunately when we live in an era of populism and the rational economic arguments usually come second to populist arguments about keeping people out or identity or whatever. Yeah. And that's what we're constantly sort of fighting against. I think that's partly because we haven't addressed some of the fundamental issues about people who live, particularly there's a concentration of people who who have low wages and live in low wage economies. And, you know, whether it's in care work that you're engaged in, whether you're a delivery driver, you know, whether you're, you know, working, you know, the insecurity mm. of this. And that's why the, Re- the Resolution Foundation has done some really interesting work, I think, that's really saying, you know, we actually need to fundamentally address that because we make that the price to pay for economic um, change, then these problems will go deeper and deeper. Because if people feel that system isn't offering them any future to that, they look for other solutions, and yeah, and people look for and are you know open to simplistic arguments about uh, you know Brexit will solve everything or independence will solve everything without having these you know these these deep seated policy changes that we need. Well, you yeah. can't. Yeah, because of course you should invest in thriving sectors and we need to look, especially after oil and gas in Scotland, we need to look at, you know, boosting uh, productivity in, in our other performing sectors. But you also, and this is about, going back to the point I was going to make about Rachel Reeves, that, you know, integrating that change with an industrial strategy that talks about the everyday economy and mm-hmm. looks at productivity in the retail sector, looks at productivity in the care sector, you know, it synthesizes education in with you know your economic issues. I think that gives you a much more hopeful offer of change rather than just you know abandoning mm-hmm. um, certain areas to economic dislocation forever. Basically, what's happening in some areas. I mean, if you look at just the sort of the public, the state of the public realm in some areas, you know, which speaks to the economic uh, disadvantage of the area. You know, that's just, it's a hopeless scenario for people. So you can understand why they'll look for other solutions. Oh, for sure. I mean, if some, I can speak to the state of the Scottish railways. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who lived in China, I know what a proper modern rail network looks like. And interesting? not the Victorian, yeah. the legacy of the beaching cuts that we live with here. Look so at I'm, the state of Glasgow city centre. And you mm. would not think that is meant to be one of the most performing economic cities. Uh-huh. I mean, it's. We have got big, big problems to to face. In terms of uh, town centres, city centres, that's also part of the the rise of the digital economy, which is maybe an irresistible trend, which also brings in the issue of local government funding, which is not sustainable. Local governments don't have uh, enough actual physical control over their own budgets because you've got in terms of Glasgow City Council I think it's over 75% of their budget is not derived from the council tax it's the same funding from central Easily government ever think, yeah. and the SNP have this great addiction to ring fencing ever larger amounts of it which means there's not a lot of flexibility for local governments to play with and on top of that there's almost what 937 million pounds of cuts to local governments over the last eight years by Holyrood to local governments. All of this make, that makes it harder to actually do anything or it, at a city or local level around childcare, town centre mm. regeneration, whatever infrastructure projects, whatever it is. You know, Glasgow Airport Rail Link was never built and that's been promised by every party now for about over 10 years. So there's all kinds of issues there. Mm. And one other thing that John and yourself talked about, and it was mentioned, I forget which of you mentioned it, it was, uh, I think it was you, John, that mentioned um, government uh, businesses with buybacks and so forth. 
BP um, has announced it's unleashing a $3.5 billion um, buyback and increasing their dividend after a tripling of their second quarter profits. They made $8.5 billion in the, the last three months of June, but they can't do anything about the gas prices that are going, in some <laughs> cases, going to go over energy bills of over £3,000. You know, it's there is something to do with the st- fundamental structure of yeah. the I think there's a proposal to say that any government loan, any government bailout, any government grant should be conditional on that profits are invested in the long term. And should and should meet a green test as well. There's a, an it's argument about that, but you have to drive longer term investment and research and development in Scotland. I think generation. a big part of the problem here, um, and this is a pet theory of mine, um, there's always a variety of capitalisms, <laughs> and I'm always been quite sceptical of shareholder sovereignty capitalism. I think it breeds short termism, like. You've got all this profit and don't reinvest it in the sector. Yeah. Don't cut prices for your consumers. Do a buyback, more profit for their investors. That's a short termism, which is deeply, deeply unhelpful. Whereas you could have a, sh- um, a stakeholder variety, which is more broadly based set of obligations. But then I run the risk of criticising the Thatcher Reagan revolution by saying all of that. <laughs> But anyway, so John, inequalities, Lib Dems. What's the, what's the party's solutions to all of these problems? Goodness, um, yeah, before we begin on, eh, uh, if you simply start to stop it. I mean, I, I think talking about the oil companies. So we we and, and Labour did as well. We 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 were very early talking about um, a kind of Robin Hood type tax, mm-hmm. and the government finally came around to that. Looking at current profits. It, wouldn't seem unreasonable to extend that and have and have an, another Robin Hood type tax uh, for later this year or whatever, or, or have it at a higher level, um, just as a way because it, it, at the moment it's like in a rentier system where the, the the big energy companies are just kind of extracting rents from society as we as we all suffer. It's entirely fair to kind of um, in the interest of of balancing things out and and, and uh, having a more equal society of of taxing them more in the short term, even if it creates uncertainty, and there might be a kind of longer term, more permanent solution which gives the oil companies certainty where they automatically get taxed if oil prices and gas prices go above a certain level or profits relating to that mm-hmm. go above a certain level, and then it's automatically a bag of tax takes comes out of them just to give them certainty over the future revenues, which you know because they, they don't the thing they don't like is uncertainty. Am I am I going to have a random tax put on me? Mm. Fair enough. Um, so, so, um, so what yeah. you're so what you're saying is it's not just trade unions that can hold the country to ransom. It could also be a slightly oligopolistic energy market. Well, all I mean, all, all markets are are prone to aspects of monopoly or monopolisation like um, behaviour, which then makes them inefficient. Mm. And there's definitely a, a role for the state in always st- in, in being there and stepping in. To through regulation or, or other means to ensure that there's a fair market and it's fair for everyone involved, whether it's workers, managers, owners, whatever. Um, so there's because because if, if you don't have the state there intervening um, to create fairness, then uh, naturally things tend to gravitate towards monopolies of power, influence, and money, which yeah. then creates a, a more stagnant society if you don't have social mobility and you don't have mm-hmm. uh, you don't have any prospect of, of equality etc yeah. so there's always a role for the state there in doing that um and it feels as, as a sort of longer term trend over the last few decades that we've we've got to a point where and this is probably particularly pronounced by the fact that new wages haven't really grown in western in, in advanced economies over the last 15 years We've probably got to the point where um, inequality has has reached such a level where it's become, but it's damaging to the social fabric overall, and things need to be done to try and redress that by governments. Now that could be things like looking at a wealth tax. Uh, on paper, a wealth tax absolutely makes sense in terms of fairness, in terms of um, breaking down those barriers that I was talking about earlier, monopolies of power and influence and money, and just trying to create that more balanced economy. 
Um, it's a really difficult thing to sell to the public, though, because a lot of people think I've already I've made my money and been taxed on it already through income tax. Why should I get taxed on it again mm-hmm. as a wealth tax? But when you take account of the fact, the point that you made earlier, that the only reason people with stocks and shares items have got richer over the last 10 years is because of low interest rates and quantities of easing. And the value of their portfolios has directly gone up as interest rates directly went down. Mm-hmm. And that might redress over the next few years itself as interest rates go up again to a more kind of um, the, the sort of trends we used to see in the past. But there's no getting away from the fact if you've been an, if you're if you're asset rich if you've been asset rich over the last ten years you've just got richer and richer. And if you're not asset rich but you rely on a wage or a welfare or a pension to get you by, then um, you've got poorer in relative terms and you're getting a lot poorer now because inflation's eating into that. So there's definitely um, things that government could be doing in a rational world. We could we could do a lot more and be, be a lot more radical. Very difficult to sell a lot of these things to the public. Mm. Margaret. Well, um, it could be here all day. Um, but there are real costs with inequalities that come too. Mm-hmm. And often the costs of, um, you know, like welfare at the extreme point, I don't mean just benefits, but, you know, like costs around drug abuse, costs around ill health, actually, you know, can trace themselves back to not tackling equality properly. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I'm sure you'll remember the analysis of the, from the spirit level, who's the authors, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, who found that they did very detailed research, very comprehensive research, and found that. Um, the most unequal societies have the most profound social and economic problems. And if you began to address inequality, you found that you improved those social indicators and economic indicators. I think they did it across 11 categories. So if you're having, you know, it, it affects things like the level of pris- prisoner population, the level of drug abuse, the level of things like obesity. So it's, you know, when you're trying to, ta- and, and we have those issues in Scotland, if you're actually trying to tackle those problems, rather than spending lots of money on little pockets of initiatives, you're actually much better trying to go to the root causes. So that kind of, you know, there are financial benefits and economic benefits that can come from tackling inequality. Um, and we, we have some discussions, I think, publicly in Scotland about, and the UK, about where is wealth, who owns the wealth, where is it located? Um, what you know, how it's manipulated and how it's moved, and mm. I was just seeing some things recently, just about you know, particularly in London and the old Russian oligarchs and how they've hidden wealth in, in London and how they've used this. Sort of, you'll know much more about this than I do, John, <laughs> about how the system works in London, about how finance can be and money can be hidden. You know, there's so much more to be done in just trying in, in financial transparency and financial accountability around yeah. the behaviour of some of that. And I think that would just, people would, there's a sense of justice around that and fairness, I mm. think, that people feel isn't properly addressed and that's why they get this, it comes out in anger and resentment yeah. and people see, you know, the corporate greed, but mm. don't see real solutions, again, from the political system for that. So, I mean, that's the kind of job of the political parties mm. to get in and actually say to people, there is a reasonable way through this. So mm. I think one of the problems is that whenever we have these types of discussions, they tend to go towards the extremes quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even though I'm saying things like a wealth tax could make a lot of sense in in a country like the UK or the US or, or France or whatever, um, I still think that markets work overall. Yeah. I think as, as yeah. free, I'm still a free market proponent. Um, I don't want to see, you know, I, I'm not anti-capitalist at all. Capitalism does work overall. Capitalism is the way that we lift people. But you can regulate it better, can't you, to stop the abuses that are that are evident and go on and how, the, for example, the London property market works just now or how offshore accounting works and such like. Yeah, so you can you can regulate it in a way to create the right incentives for the proper behaviour and, and, and outcomes that are relatively fair. Well, in theory, you can. Um but the, the difficulty is how how do you do that? So back in the early two thousands, for instance, Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, etc., thought they were all doing really well with the banking sector in London because they were they were taking a kind of laissez-faire attitude towards. Actually, that's not quite right. People talk about the banks weren't regulated. The banks had actually never been regulated as intently as they were in the early two thousands before the financial crisis. But it's just that the thinking that underpinned the regulation was that. The people in the banks who create all the risk management models, they're the smart people who know 
<laughs> better than anyone else. Oh, well, they did to us. So we basically, we basically let them create their own models. Yeah. And as long as they're meeting a bunch of regulations with their own models, then we can assign it off and say we're, say we're happy with that. that. That system proved to be fundamentally then flawed and, and intellectually corrupt almost, um, and which led to the 2008 financial crisis. So, but the banking system was highly regulated. It was just regulated in the wrong way. We weren't being smart enough about it. Um, so, what would, what would your opinion be on the separation of investment banking from tradition, your traditional banking? Yeah, I'm not sure if that ever really. Thank you. That that happened in the, in the 1930s after the in, in the US after the. And it was Clinton that did the separation, strict separation. Then after the financial crisis, there was a, another version of, of a similar act in the US. And then that, we never really did it here. And I'm not sure it makes much sense in the modern bank world to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, how, how you regulate banks is, is a whole other, other topic. But the, the, the kind of crucial point was that um, Everyone thought they were doing the right thing in the early 2000s. No one's seen that banking crisis coming, including left-wing politicians like Gordon Brown mm-hmm. and Darling. Um, and that's not their fault. It was a phenomenon. And nobody saw it. No. Yeah, but it was a phenomenon that the, the banking crisis and the financial crash that happened then. It wasn't. It's too simplistic to just try and lay the blame on a single group of people or whatever. Oh yeah, it was a systemic no. problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's going to take us off topic. Why was I talking about that? I think we were talking about, I think it's, I think your point, forgive me for watching your mouth, was okay. if you're going to have regulation and transparency and accountability, you've got to make it work. It yeah. can't just, yeah. be, and it was about, can't just cripple the sector through yeah. the regulation. You have to be allowed to, to yeah. innovate. And Which of course is right. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and then and the political point I was making was that um, often when you start to have these discussions, um, they tend to be overtaken by people who are, completely anti-capitalist and want to break the system, people on the hard left who are so extreme in their views that capitalism is bad, anyone who thinks any differently is a neoliberal, um, and and then and then that tends to close down the conversation. Well, in terms can of I ask you a question, John, as someone yeah. who's in that sector? I mean, it's back to the original point I think that Dean made. Part of the problem we've got is that the way that uh, profits, if you like, are the very crudest definition of that, um, are going back to shareholders are going back to you know and the profits are just increasing they're not being used for sustainable long-term investment into research and development and innovation which creates our productivity problem again that's very crude and simplistic but bear with me um but what my argument is and i think people on the labor side of the argument would be is the state should um, increase regulation increase mechanisms that drive behavior towards that that you know and i mean there's that there's a sort of moral point about transparency and accountability and not letting people abuse money which is and i think there is abuse that should be tackled it's probably crime that should be tackled as well but uh, abuse certainly and that should be tackled but the point is more an economic one uh, which is more about driving the behaviors of corporate investment and how do you get that to uh, pay for a long-term sustainable economic sustainability Mm. i'm not sure i mean the the economic system, the financial system is set up in such a way that if there's a profit incentive there, then it will, it will be fleshed out by entrepreneurs and, and others. And if there's inefficiencies, they'll tend to be worked out of the market. Um, the, the difficulty is if you have too much state intervention and it's the wrong state in, intervention, you, you, you tend to just stop economic activity happening mm-hmm. at all. And you stop the innovation and, 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 and you, every day will be need that. So I think that the ideal is probably to create the, the the correct incentives to stimulate all the innovation and entrepreneurship and everything else, but then make sure that the the, the profits and outcomes of that are taxed properly and then redistributed into the economy. And help I get out. that, but I think it's probably more than just tax. I mean, I think the argument now is that, of course, tax and redistribution is centred to, to a lot of it, but it has to be more than that. It has to. I think it has to be more than that. Is I, 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 would, I, would, I would share that point. I agree, Mark. I'm very... Prof- I'm in favour of free markets very much so, but I'm also in favour of redistributing the proceeds of growth. Um, that's a 
I think that's a bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that's a blear right term. I think I've just exposed a bit of my political leanings there. <laughs> anyway, um, the point we, that I'm trying to make is we need markets to innovate. We need them to be productive. We need them to do what they do and do well. But they don't always do that. The last hundred years have seen through the rise of mar- free freer trade, globalized trade, massive reductions in global poverty, real poverty. So it has been a success story. But as you say, regulation, the right regulation. But I, I, I go further. Right now, the principle, the sole legal fiduciary obligation for the big businesses, and we should not overstate them. Most businesses in the economy, the big employers, are actually the small and medium-sized businesses. Yes, there is, yeah. I, I acknowledge that. But the big businesses, it's, sheer, it's legal fiduciary obligation, deliver short-term profits to shareholders. So... You get the government, what happened after the financial crisis, all this liquidity was created, government buying government bonds, etc. get banks lending again, encourage people to spend, not save. But a lot of the a lot of banks used it sort of to build up their rebuild their asset books and buy back shares and dividends for shareholders. There has to be more uh, more than just a short termist legal obligation to deliver profits to shareholders. We have to have a more long-termist consideration by businesses over, as I say, stakeholders beyond just shareholders. Does that make any sense to anyone? Yeah, yeah. I think bringing back to kind of fundamentals at the Scottish level, mm-hmm. education skills is really crucial, I think. And I think there was a big mistake made about 10 years ago when the SNP cut further education college places yeah. by 150,000. And that's probably played into some of the problems that we're seeing now in the Scottish economy around productivity and um, and other things. Because those those college places were crucial for people skilling and reskilling, yep, yep, crucial yep. for social mobility. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, keeping people in the education sector. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think things like that, which tend to fly under people's radar, mm-hmm. they're actually quite important. Um, I don't know if there's any research, but it must have hit the hospitality industry. Yeah, it really must have, because it won't be producing that sort of uh, pipeline of people coming through in terms of some of the, you know, the HNDs, certainly HNCs that were being offered there. And certainly in the care sector, I'm sure it would have hit them. Yeah, um, and there's lots of people uh, from, you know, from my sort of background who maybe didn't peak at school education wise, maybe peak later. Exactly. In their 20s yeah. or whatever, and then they need opportunities uh, to, to go and, and, and learn yeah. skills or whatever at uh, that point. So... You know, there's things like that, and, and that, that cutting 150,000 college places was done to pay for um, free tuition fees mm. to, to, to make up for that. So, well, it wasn't even free tuition fees, to pay for the graduate endowment, which the Labour Liberal Democrats coalition introduced. Yeah. And was not a tuition fee. And it was certainly wasn't. I was there. Yeah, it was a graduate endowment. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so there's things like that, that I think we need to do. We also need to attract more people from other parts of the UK because there's a free market there already with tens of millions of people who some of them should be eager to come and work here and, and have businesses and things here. So it's, there's no language barriers, there's no uh, there's no legal or other barriers. It's just everyone works in the same system. They, they know how to pay their council tax and everything else. It should be it's as easy to move here as any, from, from England as it is from one part of Scotland to another. So it should we should be attracting workers that way. That raised, that makes me want to probe both of you on a point there. UK Internal Market Bill. Would you do there is a there is a legitimate question that argument that it is being used as a means to sidestep devolutionary structures. On the <laughs> other hand, there's a lot of it that does make sense in terms of making an, the UK internal market much, much more effective. What so, are your thoughts? Is that a help for or unhelpful? Well, the first thing I'd say is that I, I would have rather that bill wasn't needed at all because we're still in the EU. So that that would be the ideal scenario. We're still in the EU and we're in the EU single market and that, that bill isn't even required. So that would be the, that would be the first thing to say. Um, beyond that, if you set the simple fact that we've come out of the EU and then unfortunately gone for an extreme hard Brexit where we've come out of the single market in the customs union too, then there was actually probably a, requ- a requirement to have some kind of law which would ensure um, uh, that, that similar standards would prevail across the UK. 
given that we were outside the EU single market. So I can understand that given the circumstances, the unfortunate circumstances that we were leaving the single market customers union, that some sort of bill was required. Mm. Um, otherwise, you would have a government like the Scottish government, which is incentivized to be different just to, for the sake of being different, mm. trying to create um, economic chaos within the UK yeah. by having different standards, etc. So, so it had to be done. Um, it's also definitely a, 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 a something that could be abused by those who want to take power or, or, or money away from spending power away from Scotland and, and centralise it around Westminster. Um, and there's been one or two hints of that so far, but nothing really major. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. There's so much clumsy politics, I think, coming from both governments actually around some of this that it's quite distressing. You know, when you see, I mean, I see some of the debate that's going on in the the Tory party at the moment. You know, uh, I know I'm, you know, I'm politically biased, but gosh, you know, it does make you despair sometimes. And I think sometimes you could take the clumsy politics out of it and try and look at what's the effect of governance. You could perhaps come to a better arrangement here and have real and shared proper dialogue between all the constituent parts of the UK and you know and have sort of I don't think we've ever done this we've never created the proper architecture for a post-evolution United Kingdom and we've got work to do on that that does actually lead to rational decision making and and I think you're right John we could end up we need something like this given the terrible circumstances that we're in but we could end up creating a you know another you know such terrible problems Mm. because I do think we have to respect evolution and we have to empower the constituent nations and make sure that they have the powers yeah. um, but don't let clumsy politics get in the way yeah. of it yeah i guess we, we, we may well have one government in london at the moment which disrespects the evolution but then we have another government in hollywood which wants to destroy yeah, the evolution yeah, yeah that's right that's and right. that's that, that, that that toxic <laughs> and you do when you're talking i mean as i said at the beginning it's it's refreshing that we do you know we can actually just talk about some of the things like skills gaps in scotland and you know financial systems and such like and how that affects because we just don't have the kind of logical discussions i think we need to have and maybe there's some hope that when we get to that we can create the public discourse you need to actually get you to some of those that that well, decision making that we actually need to have and some of the trickiness around some of that, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, when it comes when we when it comes to questions around the economy, inequalities, possible solutions, there is a certain UK framework. The Internal Market Bill is necessary. We did leave the EU. Um, sadly, we don't have the opportunities Northern Ireland has, um, being still in the single market. Lucky in Northern Ireland, despite the rhetoric of. The Redwoods of John Redwoods of the world. Um, however, more basic level this within this devolutionary structures, you I would always be a big. It's not a popular view, but I'd, I've long argued that we need more MSPs to encourage a backbench culture in Holyrood. We need a reform of the committee system. MSPs need yeah. to have the kind of immunity that MPs have in the Palace of Westminster. The inquiry into the mishandling of sexual harassment um, allegations that the so-called Salmond inquiry exposed the shortcomings of all of it. Um, So yeah, there is all of that. And all of this has an effect for the first half of devolution. It was about spending money, not thinking or even talking about raising taxes, thinking about revenue creation it was always just about our our bailiwick is here's the money let's spend it and yeah. that's begun to change quite dramatically since new powers were handed yeah. began being handed over from 2016 onwards so that's a very welcome reform but again i'm worried about the habit of every time there's a sort of farago hollywood and westminster westminster politicians just give more powers away and there gets yeah. to a certain point where we do need to define the confines of devolution. Um, but, you know, that's slightly off topic, but it's an interesting one for the future. So there is maybe one interesting point in all that, which is purely financial related, which is that um, post the Smith Commission and the new fiscal framework that we've got in place, which is currently being reviewed, um, there has been, obviously, the, the Scottish Parliament has more tax raising powers now, so it's, it's raising revenue as well as spending it in a way it didn't before. But there's still not a, a direct link that, that, that makes the Scottish government um, properly responsible, I think, for its, for its tax and spend mm-hmm. in a way that, say, the Westminster government is. 
and that is that that is a problem. Um, and there may be an argument that, in, rather than thinking about the amount of power that goes to to Hollywood versus the amount of power that's retained at Westminster, in a kind of black and white way, in, in that way, it's, it's probably smarter to think about in a more pragmatic sense. But what's the um, in a practical manner, what's the legitimate power that should be of levers that should be sitting at a Hollywood level and what's the ones that should be sitting at a Westminster level in relation to making government accountable mm-hmm. for its tax and spending or, or to its electorate. And it's not it's it's not working devolution is certainly not working at the level it should be just now. There could be an argument to actually extend borrowing powers for the Scottish government on that basis, but it would have to be done so to the extent that a Scottish government could issue Scottish subnational bonds. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that US states issued bonds and the US federal government also issued bonds, mm-hmm. um, Scotland as a sub-state could issue debt directly onto capital markets and raise money for day-to-day spending, which can mm-hmm. do I say technically it can do that just now, but with very very strictly very small amount. Mm. But it, there's nothing to stop the Scottish government doing that just now, but it's not gone out and issued its bonds out onto the market, um, which I, I'm guessing is because they don't want to have a credit rating that could fluctuate with um, uh, with speculation around potential independence referendums happening, because it would become more costly for them to borrow if it looked as if that debt was suddenly become a Scot- suddenly going to become a Scotland only debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the way this works in, in the, at the US state level is US states can borrow, but it's illegal under federal law for a US state to go bankrupt. So that takes care of the, of the credit risk element. If, if a US state is approaching bankruptcy, it has to just sort out its spending to make sure it can still meet its bond commitments. You, you don't, we don't want to end up with a Puerto Rico situation, though, do we? What was the first, which the right Rico's not a state, it's a territory in America, but it has the the uh, all, a few years but, back. Mm-hmm. and they're in a they're basically functionally bankrupt, but they're not allowed to go bankrupt. It's an absolute catastrophe. Well, so we it's the same for every U.S. state. Also, although Puerto Rico's not a state, it's the same for <laughs> all the states in, in, in the U.S. Mm. Um, so this is just a thought. So I'm not. This is this is not an demagogy. To create the incentives for, for the Scottish Government to tax and spend and raise potentially raise money and be properly accountable. Mm-hmm. So it can't just turn around and say, we're not spending here because Westminster don't give us enough money. And if we had more levers, then we'd be doing it OK. Um, I think there has to be some sort of different system for that. Yeah, as I understand it, this it's allowed the Scottish government's allowed to borrow up to a certain amount for capital, which would be infrastructure projects and stuff. But day to day, um, it's there are very very strict rules around all of that. Yeah, and there's a small amount of borrowing, relatively small amount of borrowing you can do for um, um, uh, uncertainties in its budget. From yeah, it's year it's year. to do with budget. Reconciliations. Yeah, reconciliations. What, what it thinks it's going to spend and what it actually spends. So, so there's there's a there's a certain amount of borrowing you can do around that, but the borrowing powers are relatively restricted. Mm. Um, although they could issue bonds if they wanted to. Um, but it, there's there's a case that certainly in, in other federal countries, and maybe that's the fundamental problem that we're not a formally federal country. So that makes it because they don't have that underlying constitutional legal basis that actually makes it difficult to set up some of these financial structures. Yeah. Um, but there's a case that that that, that could be for, uh, potentially for reviewing that. But maybe all all of this would be reviewed under, say, like a UK constitutional convention, where yeah. we where we talked about all this stuff, including federal some sort of form of full, full federal system, yeah. um, and giving everyone a voice. And I think if 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 we continue with this conversation around not here but in the country around the constitution, the the next stage should be a UK constitutional convention where we do talk about all these things properly. And my party would be wanting to, for instance, perform the House of Lords, as I'm sure <laughs> Margaret would, um, and turning it into a, a, a house of representing yeah, yeah. The, the nations yeah. and regions. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and then as part of that, maybe the big financial arrangement, the big step for making <laughs> Scotland and other, region, other 
nations and regions um, more financially accountable would be would be part of that. Yeah, to be the contrarian in the conversation, I'd probably not agree with in any elected upper chamber. Um, I like the idea of a revising chamber. I think the House of Lords does do a very good job. Um, that's another podcast for you. Well, that's a whole other discussion because I could talk about identity cards, 90 days of detention without charge, civil liberties. How's well, democracy maybe might come into <laughs> electing people who make the laws. <laughs> if you have two, if you have a bicameral system, both of them with elected mandates, you end up with. Anyway, that's another podcast. But this is another podcast and we've went on very long. I think that was a very dis uh, helpful discussion. Uh, hopefully my subscribers will find it enlightening and illuminating. Um, being able to talk about bread and butter issues surrounding inequalities, inflation, economic structures, possible solutions to do with, um, for example, like John was saying, perhaps Scottish government being able to have more bond and borrowing powers. There's lots of potential solutions. Also, reversing cuts to education, reversing cuts to local government, the rever you know, reversing a lot of centralisation and budget cuts that were made in Holyrood rather than London. There's a lot of potential solutions. Anyway, I, th I thank you both for participating and we were able to get into most of it without getting too drawn into the rather long drawn out independence question that at this point I'm tired of writing about talking about <laughs> to be I think you might be more tired again <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah here we go again I think there's a song in there somewhere <laughs> well Margaret Thanks, Dean. Thank and you. John Ferry Thanks, for joining me Nice to talk to you, Margaret. So. And you, John. Nice to actually formally yeah. meet you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks,